Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Blank Page Book Club. My name's Alan and this time I'm joined by my friends Jess and Gemma and we're going to be talking about Andrew Michael Hurley's debut novel The Loney, published in 2015. Um, and we're also going to be talking about some other spooky and supernatural tales and we might even talk about Catholicism along the way as well. listening again I'm here with Jess say hello Jess hi and Gemma again hello and uh, today we're going to talk about The Loney which is a novel published in 2015 by Andrew Michael Hurley it's his debut novel and it won the Costa debut novel prize last year um, Jess it is described on the cover <laughs> by Stephen King no less as a masterful excursion into terror uh, did you feel terrified by the loney? No, and I think, but I was terrified by that description because I'm a complete um, coward when it <laughs> comes to anything of the horror genre. So I wouldn't read this book at night just in case I got up to a particularly scary bit and then couldn't sleep. And I think because it said that and I, and I was expecting all this terror to arrive, it probably gave me a weird sort of expectation of what I was going to come across in the book, yeah. which never occurred. And so I think I probably read it wrong. You know, I read it, it's like going to see um, a comedy film thinking that it's, I don't know, going to be an action adventure or something like that. You're going to be kind of so disappointed. Your expectations if, were kind of... Yeah, and yeah. Um, I wish, yeah, so I wish that hadn't been there and there hadn't been anything about it being, you know, a true horror or anything like that, because I definitely don't think that that is what its genre is. Yeah, definitely, it sort of bounds on that, but an excursion into terror? So <laughs> that seems a weird thing for Stephen King, particularly, to say. If it's not a horror, if it's not a horror book, then how would you describe it? Um, well, you sort of titled this as um, The Lonely and Ghost Stories, yeah. didn't you? And I think it's spooky in that sense, definitely. It's creepy, I think. Yeah, but... As for horror, I don't, I don't really think so. I think it's probably spoken about in the same breath as um, The Woman in Black, but I think that that definitely is horror. This and this one doesn't feel like that to me. It didn't, it didn't spook me even, and it's very easy to make me sort of, you know, want to put a book down and like have to go away or like, I don't know, hug a toy or something while I recover. Yeah. I didn't need to do that with this. Okay. It was quite good at sort of giving a sense of unease, mm, but definitely. it didn't, the end didn't pan out in a way that, that sort of lived up to that unease, that it was, that it was sort of channeling all the way through, which for me kind of, I think it's just the way I read books, but I was racing through it to try and get to the climax and... <laughs> Miss, I feel I felt like I kept missing out on key details, and while I was doing that, and then when I got to the end, it just felt like it was a little bit of a waste. Hmm. <laughs> really? Yeah, because I, I'd, I'd sort of because I'd raced through. I was slightly confused because I'd obviously missed out on some plot points and or something, 
and then the end just didn't feel like it was as dramatic mm-hmm. and terrifying as stuff that had happened beforehand would lead you to believe it would be. Okay. Is that another example? Because I read some reviews on Amazon and there were a few people saying... One person gave it a one-star review. I read that really surprised me. Because he said, this was labelled to me as a terrifying horror novel, and it isn't. It's a fantastic book. I mean, it's really great. I loved it. But, you know, it's not a horror novel. And he gave it one star. Yeah, which is ridiculous. I think since since I read it, I, I probably like it more Like now that I know what kind of, not necessarily what genre I'd put it in, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure, and it doesn't really matter, but now that I've got over the idea that it was meant to be terrifying or whatever, and I didn't find that it was, I'm like, no, it was. A, it's a really good book, and it's definitely for um, a debut as well. It's, yeah, it's I think excellent. for a debut novel, it's really, really well written. It's, really, it's, it's kind of commanding in its tone, and I think... All the, ca- all the characters were great as well. Mm. Like so the just characterization to, was fantastic. So just to outline the plot then, Yana, what's the basic setup of Valonia? So it, the basic setup is that a group of parishioners from a London Catholic church go to the northwest English coast, somewhere near Lancaster, Morecambe area, on a pilgrimage to this place called the Loney, which holds a holy site. There, and they go over the Easter weekend, which is also the time that I read this book. <laughs> um, and while they're there, I don't know how much away stuff happens. Well, yeah, so there's several things going on, isn't there? The, this is a pilgrimage they undertake every year, this community. And it's specifically the reason that we're interested in it is because the, one of the main things they want to do, the novel is narrated by um, a character whose brother seems to have some kind of severe learning difficulties is mutism and can't speak and seems to have other, other issues going on as well and they believe that by going to this site by anointing him in the right way and undertaking these kind of rituals that he will be cured of his afflictions and that's one of the main reasons why they're going so the mother she's there as well and the priest is there so they undertake this, this pilgrimage in this in this coach up to this really desolate stretch of the coastline to see if they can cure Hanny is his name but this time they haven't actually been for a few years, have they? Because the previous priest who they'd always gone with has died, and there's that's one of the other things that happens, isn't it? It's sort of like um, possibly like, connected to something. Yeah, there, and the, the sort of going backwards as a sort of retrospective narrative as well, exploring um, the relationship between the narrator and the priest, or some of the things that that priest does before he dies. So, so there's, um, there's there's three time frames in the book. There's the narrative. The present is the narrator as an adult thinking back to the main action of the novel when he was a child, but then there's also a time even previous to that when the older priest, Father Wilfred, Father Wilfred was around, and so we get sort of flashbacks within the flashback to that earlier time as well. Uh, and then when they get there, there's lots of sort of neo-gothic or stereotypically gothic things that start to happen, like they dead animals and weird <laughs> things being kept in jars and creep- it's a little bit Blair Witch, isn't it? Creepy, isolated stuff that was fitting well to the first series of True Detective. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, Which I definitely found much more terrifying than this. Yes. Book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I think I, I I really liked it. I really enjoyed it a lot. I think I I grew up in the northwest, and my parents uh, have lived in Morecambe, 
and around Morecambe Bay. And I know those, that area quite well around Lytham and the Fylde and all that, that part of the country. And it is quite bleak. And, the, and Morecambe Bay is really, is quite a dangerous place. Mm. There's been, I've read reviews of this book that have talked about the history of ships being shipwrecked there back in the 16, 1700s and how many people died um, in the bay. And it was only, what, 10, was it 10 years ago when those... The all those people died pickers, yeah. when they all died in Morecambe Bay. Now, if you if you go to Morecambe um, and you look across the bay, you can see the Lake District in the distance across the bay. It's beautiful, uh, and you can walk across it, but uh, you have to be guided by somebody because it's Queen's really men. I was told I have got no idea if this can be verified or not, but that the Queen employs men to guide people out, and they are they're directly employed by the Queen. <laughs> Right. I don't know if that's true or not. We'll the Queen's yeah. Men sounds like the a Queen's sort of like acting troupe to see yeah. from the ye olde days. Yeah, or like a, a, a do-what band from the, from the 40s. <laughs> the Queen's Men. Um, and so, yeah, that landscape, I think it is quite bleak. It is grey and it's kind of slate grey skies and everything. And I think the best thing, the, for me, my favourite thing about it was the landscape, mm. the setting of it. Um, Jess, you put on Twitter... Um, something that somebody had said where the author had said that the landscapes what came first the rest of the book kind of grew around his decision to write about the landscape yeah and i read another um article actually written by the author andrew hurley where he said that it was because he's such an, an outdoorsy person and someone who's used to hiking walking in all climbing in all kinds of weathers and conditions like he wanted to do something with that you know, power of nature kind of thing and was really drawn to that particular landscape. So it is almost like he found a story to fit into that. Um, and I think he was raised um, Roman Catholic himself as well. So there's a lot of that in there. So yeah, that's funny because you've got the sort of ties to the um, to that landscape. And as someone who was also raised Roman Catholic, mm -hmm. I definitely dear. felt that yeah. got <laughs> so. some of those ritualistic sort of nasty catholic people <laughs> so really really spot on i found i found that um really compelling and quite realistic to my experience not that anything quite so weird happened in my church or anything but um yeah it really it really chimed with me i remember horrible <laughs> it's not that horrible things but one of the horrible things that i, I felt as a child was we had this um it was an rotating by that I don't mean it moved um, it just went around different parishioners the statue of Mary <laughs> and um, each week a family would have to host this statue in the front room <laughs> and then every evening some local old women would come around and do the sort of um, you know do the entire rosary and you had to sort of go in there and I just remember being really creeped out by this by this statue, you know, it was, um, it wasn't like we were the kind of family where we did grace before meals or anything. Um, but I did have to go to church every, every week. And I went to a Catholic primary school and a Catholic secondary school. And I even worked in a Catholic secondary school as well. So yeah, I, I think people, if they haven't got that background could easily think yeah. that he was really exaggerating a lot of a lot of um, the attitudes that people have there, but I don't, I don't yeah. think he is. Did you, you were raised Catholic as well, Gemma. Did, <laughs> did the depiction of Catholicism in this book chime with you in the same way? Um, in some ways. I think that Father Brendan, who is the new yeah. priest, was definitely the sort of priest so, that I knew growing up. And he's which, presented as quite a kindly 
nice person. He's not particularly dogmatic. He's not particularly disciplinary, and he's quite. He's the opposite friendly. of Father Wilfred, yes. isn't he? And it's yeah. where it's like you know what can, how can religion help you rather than yeah. you know, the other way around. And that's the only sort of that's the only um, sort of side of priests that I saw. But I definitely, I mean, from my knowledge of growing up in that um, in that church, I mean, the Catholicism's grisly. <laughs> um, um, like just like I, I, thinking back um, over Easter, like I can remember one of our primary school uh, hymns that we used to sing had a line <laughs> in it. Um, it was called "Were you there when they crucified our Lord?" And then yeah. one of the lines of it, "Were you there when they nailed him to a tree?" <laughs> Which just feels like something that you shouldn't have sort of four-year-olds singing. This is why quite I, unpleasant. This is why I felt it was really funny when um, all the parents started complaining about Watership Down yeah. air, airing on TV on uh, Easter Sunday. Like, don't ruin their image. <laughs> Of, uh, of rabbits, you know, on Easter Sunday, on this day of celebration of, uh, you know, the resurrection of our Lord after he'd been nailed to a tree and speared in the side. Yeah. It's like the Catholics love that attention to detail. Yeah, definitely. And I loved, I really loved the bit. It really made me sort of laugh in a possibly hollow way. Um, the When they have the Easter cake in the book um, and the just the little sort of the little rituals because because is very sort of ritualistic mm. as well there is, there's lots of stuff that goes along with it um and the the, the everyone everyone complimented mama on how she'd made a marzipan jesus and how vivid oh, the yeah. blood was yeah. <laughs> the blood the, like the how vivid she'd managed to make the blood on this little marzipan figure she's a terrifying figure isn't she, Mama, yeah. in this book? So that's the mother of the narrator and his brother. And she's the one that, most of all, is determined that if they do the rituals correctly, if, they, if they're sort of... She's got quite a dogmatic approach to faith. She thinks that Father Bernard is not strict enough, mm-hmm. that he's not Catholic enough, that he's not really treating him in the way that a priest should, and that he's too nice and forgiving and kind. And she's got this more old-fashioned sort of... You fire know, and brimstone. Fire, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, fire and brimstone attitude. Um... And without giving anything away, particularly the scene where they get to the, the shrine is terrifying. Not Perhaps not terrifying is the right word. But uh, really distressing. It's distressing, mm. yeah. yeah. And, and she, she's a horrible, horrible character, I thought. And yet, not necessarily portrayed as being, like, I don't know, she's kind of sympathetically portrayed at the same time, isn't she? It's more that she's desperate and yeah. you, you understand that a lot of this faith is the only thing yeah. that she has and it is very easily shaken like i mean that's what they say in the book like you know the narrator says it's the, t- the time he realizes that all she has is these rituals and if one of the rituals goes awry then yeah. then her faith the, her faith is done and I think that that sort of feeds into the, one of the main things I wanted to say about the lonely which is that I think that ultimately it's quite a humanist book definitely yeah. so you've got somebody like mama who like you say she relies on rituals and if part of that is taken away then she has little left she seems to struggle to understand people as human beings she's got a son who she wants to fix um, rather than kind of accepting that he is who he is and that she should love him for that you know, she wants to fix him, she thinks he's wrong, that he's broken in some way. And then again, without giving too much away, there's the the big sort of reveal at the end. It's kind of also connected to 
whether we should be able to use people as a means to an end mm-hmm. and whether it's okay to do that. Um, and I think all the, all the characters that are presented most sympathetically, uh, particularly Father Bernard, are characters who seem to have a more humanist way of looking at people, where they're, they're forgiving and kind and respectful of others. And, and, flex- see them and flexible in their thinking. And flexible, think. yeah, and are able to see them as you know, complex people, each and every one. And I, I, that's where the book seems to come down. It seems you seem to be various ways of looking at faith and dogma, and to some extent, like the supernatural or, or witchcraft, or even you know, sort of other other sort of systems like that that seem to reduce people down to objects to be used, or fixed or mended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems to suggest that ultimately there's a kind of cruelty in that, and that perhaps a more humane way of looking at things is to see people as complete and full in themselves. And I felt that's where the book sort of came, that's the side it came down on in the end, you know. And then there's a whole other aspect connected to that of how we are constantly in a battle against our landscape as well, So, which reminded me of The Revenant, the film, The Revenant, which I saw recently, because in that it's all about man versus nature. And we always seem to lose in those battles, like Father Wilfred, you know. Yeah, yeah that actually, yeah, that scene really sort of brings the scene at the end at the end of the book with father father wilfred really does bring that the the immovable force of nature yeah. theme i read an article by by the author where he said that was one of his favorite one bits to write because it was all about realizing no matter how strong your faith no matter how powerful that can be to you ultimately that's the moment where father wilfred realizes his insignificance in the face of nature as a as a thing ah, uh, he, was mean. he was mean <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another bit that I wanted to mention was the pace eggers. Do you remember the pace? The pace egg, the, there's a bit in the book where there's these like creepy farmers yeah. who are hanging around doing weird stuff and no one quite knows what's going on until the end. But at part of it, they come into the house and they put on like a play. Oh, yeah. And they put on this really strange play yeah. where they dress up in weird costumes and, and perform for this, for, the, for this group of people in the middle of this cottage. And I looked it up and it's a real thing. Yeah, I'd not heard of that before. No, it's called Pace Egg Play. It sounded like something very medieval. Uh, they are traditional... I'm reading from Wikipedia. The Pace Egg Plays are traditional village plays with a rebirth theme in which St George smites all challengers and the fool, who is called Tosspot, <laughs> rejoices. The, the drama takes the form of a combat between the hero and the villain in which the hero is killed and brought to life, often by a quack doctor. The plays take place in England during Easter. Um, they are a tradition that was once widespread throughout England, but is now only practised in a few areas, particularly Lancashire and West Yorkshire. Oh, interesting. So it is a real thing, but I enjoy, I, I like I love that sort of thing. Yeah. Learning about these, or another another sort of rit- element of ritual or tradition there that's dying out or. And that's probably one of the creepiest parts of the book, yes. actually, isn't yes. it? Because <laughs> they've creepy. managed they've managed to get into the house where they've never performed for them before. They've like. All the pilgrims have seen this performance before, haven't they? But never um, within their actual sort of hostels, like cottage, whatever it is. Um, and so you do think that something now is going to happen. Um, it's, so it's, yeah, there's a lot of tension there as well <laughs> to go alongside the surrealness of what's happening and, yeah, the weird costumes and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's sort of like f- both funny but... Yeah, suspenseful, I guess, as well. Yeah. Did you, Jess, did you feel as... Because Gemma said she wasn't really satisfied with the ending of the book. Did you feel the same? Yeah, to an, to an extent. 
I think I'm probably more confused. We'll have to talk about this a lot maybe after the podcast is finished <laughs> so we don't risk spoiling it for yeah. everyone. Um, but there was so much I wanted, more that I wanted to know about. Like, I wanted to, like, yeah, it was just... I just it left, like, you, left you too many questions. Yeah. Not, not only Which, that, but in some ways I think um, other, other aspects were too simple and... Um, those creepy farmers, even they um, turned out to be quite a lot more human and sympathetic in some ways, maybe than the mother. <laughs> you know? So there's, um, yeah, the, the, it, it didn't seem like it, it reached the apex that it was kind of climbing towards, I think. Um, and then, yeah, so maybe there was a little bit of a petering out and he could, just couldn't keep up the sort of standard of plotting and things, given, given how, how well he'd done that far. Yeah. But, I think it's often a problem with scary books or creep, whatever you want to call them. I was about books. to say, I think it's something that I've seen a fair few times in sort of debut novels. Okay. Um, mm. I mean, that could just be, that's you know, probably just completely anecdotal, but like, yeah, I, I do know that there's been quite a few books that have read, um, like um, White Teeth by Zadie Smith, which was her debut, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, and... That was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And then the end, I think somebody described it to me as they thought that Zadie Smith had a holiday book, so just sort of... <laughs> I can't remember how it ends, so maybe it that says a lot. <laughs> it just kind of, it just goes... I remember it as being a fantastic book, but yeah, I don't remember what how it concludes at all. Yeah. yeah. I felt the same with um, special topics in calamity physics. Don't know. Do you remember that? Yes, I and don't remember of... the end. <laughs> I mean, again, I felt like when I read Special Topics in Calamity Physics, I, the, the last 100 pages I must have read in about two hours. Like, it was, a, a, it reached a point where I was just like, oh my god, and zooming through it super fast. But the ending was kind of very just fell flat. Yeah. But with Alonia, I kind of feel like it's quite elliptical. I was watching a video, shout out to Vsauce on YouTube. <laughs> I was watching a video by Vsauce, which is a YouTube channel, about creepiness and what, mm. what creepiness is. And what makes it different? Because um, Stephen King has, has said that he's drawn a distinction between terror and, and horror and creepiness. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and the, the V-Source the video was sort of investigating this idea of what creepy is. And the conclusion that he came to in, in the video, his sort of idea there was that creepiness is to do with ambiguity. Yeah. So it's where you're in a situation where if you're in a situation where something is clearly, clearly very, very threatening to you, then that's not really what you call creepy. No. If, you're, if someone's pointing a gun at you, then that's not a creepy situation to be in. It's a horrifying or terrifying situation to be in, but it's not creepy. Yeah, it's creepy a proper is, like, sort of fight, flight, freeze sort yeah. of thing, isn't it? Whereas creepy is where there's a certain ambiguity about whether, whether the situation you're in is threatening or not. So being followed home... It follows being a the film being yeah. a really good example of that actually. Yeah, so that somebody might be somebody's you can hear somebody following you. Well, that may well just be perfectly innocent, and somebody just walking home the same route as you, or it might not be, and you don't know. And it's that sort of sense of ambiguity that creates that. That's what we in his in the video he sort of talks about. That's how what we mean when we say something's creepy. Is is this something that's a threat to me or not? And our our sort of monkey brains can't always work out the nature yeah. of a threat it's not always clear uh, but something in our brains are activated when there's a possibility of that our survival instinct sort of kicks in and that's where you get those things lighting up in your brain but it's, it's unclear and I think the Lomi's quite good at that yeah you know there are things that are they 
a definite threat to these characters or not. It's not really clear. Are the farmers mixed up in some really bad stuff? And a lot of creepy or horror literature relies on that ambiguity. But then what I find, what a lot of that sort of frequently you find that those books, they resolve that ambiguity in the end and say, no, it was a massive threat all along. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the reveal. Mm. Uh, in the Loney, it, it maintains the, the ambiguity a lot further than like something like, you know, It by Stephen King, like, which, which drops that at a certain point and you just get the horror kind of revealed. Whereas in the Loney, it maintains that kind of ambiguous creepiness most of the way through, even possibly all the way through. Because even in the final scene, it's, you sort of get a sense of what's happening, but it's not really depicted in a... It's kind of hidden from you a lot. Although, although it does begin by term, giving you some information, doesn't it? It begins in the present, and you are told that um, the reason for the narrator's flashbacks and recollections are because there's a news story breaking that has to do with yeah. that pilgrimage. So I did, I did remember, I don't usually remember that kind of thing, but I remember going back to the start and it does reveal, yeah, some of the outcomes and you're therefore wondering, right, how do they get to that point and what is going on? Gemma's now picking up the, the book again to look, to look back the at, the, at the beginning. So um, I think, it, you know, it says that the older brother, Hanny, has is a, a reverend now or something yeah. like yeah. that, which is interesting because that's a different branch of Christianity than the one that he's been raised in. So that's that's kind of interesting and not, not explored. So he's got a family as well. Um, so you know that, and he's written books and things like that, so you know that something obviously is going on there and there's also been a body found, you know, nature has finally sort of revealed some yeah. of the secrets of the lonely which are now being investigated. So, yeah, there are there are little bits of hints. I guess, is that what you meant by elliptical? Yeah, look, just, just it often leaves out information. You know, it doesn't always reveal the full, <laughs> the, the true kind of reality of what's happening. It leaves a lot to the imagination. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I always quite like it when that happens. I did think as well, I mean, obviously, partly that would be due, due to um, the narrator himself. And he is, I don't want to use that unreliable narrator phrase or anything, necessarily um but you are aware that he's he's got a certain kind of story that he wants to get across but i i did think the use of of him because is he about 16 yeah he's just about to do exams isn't yeah. he? so he's 16 um during the the main bit of the recollection and i i think that that narrative works really really well um the way he gets across in an almost kind of omniscient sort of way, what what's actually happening, without actually seeming unrealistic for a sixteen-year-old boy to be portraying this to us, is is really good. It didn't sort of, yeah, it didn't jar with me at all. I thought I thought that was really the, good. I think so, the framing helps, doesn't it? Because you're mm. aware that he's he's recollecting, so you're and you know that the book kind of frames that for you. So you're aware that what you're getting is not his immediate thoughts as a 16 year old yeah. boy but his adult thoughts looking back but even in terms of the description of nature that you would and landscape that you were talking about that you like so much even from any sort of first person narrative that could be a little bit a little bit bizarre and yet it comes across really well through through this child even if yeah he is an adult like looking back um it still works as a first person narrative i think yeah i thought that Gemma, can you think of or, or Jeff's, in fact, can you think of other books that have, you know, other other books you've read that have creeped you out or scared you much? No, well, I tend to avoid 
books like that because <laughs> I'm a big woman. <laughs> but I know when I sort of when I've I, I was about to say when I've accidentally come across them, but reading a book called um called M R James's Ghost Stories isn't really accidentally reading a book that creeps you out. But that's the only real book I can fit, I can sort of recall. I don't know much about R. James, except that Marky Smith is a big fan. He was a Victorian, let me let me consult Wikipedia, he was a Victorian writer, um, I think he was a fellow at Cambridge, or, um, and he yeah wrote a lot of ghost stories, um, some of which are amazing in terms of just terrifying you. Really? Yes. Um, a whistle and I'll come to you, my lad. Which is set at the English seaside. That that again. title really rings a bell. Yeah, yeah they did. Um, they did a a version of it on the BBC at Christmas a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, and kept me up awake for all of. <laughs> I think it came out. I think it was on Christmas Eve, and yeah, I couldn't sleep afterwards. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, and even though like I read the like I'd read the book beforehand, but yeah, it's just it's sort of the same thing. You sort of never really. You never, never really find out what the thing that's causing the terror is, but there is something causing terror. Something out there. Yeah. But yeah, it's funny. I, I, there's sort of period pieces like that, and obviously the, you know, what are called horror stories by, um, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, and mm. um, oh, who's the, who are the other guys who was, who did, who wrote the Red Room and things like that. Oh, I don't know. And then there's the monkey's paw. There's all these kind of, yeah. um, you know, old-fashioned, you know, often um, American short stories and things. And I, I'm fine with those. I really enjoy those. Um, I think more because they're a little bit grotesque in a lot of ways, <laughs> and I enjoy that kind of aspect. So I don't mind that kind of that kind of creepiness. Um, but I guess when I say I'm I'm scared of horror, I kind of mean a lot of modern horror. I, I really I really don't like what's going what's going on there. It does yeah, it does stay with me, it does keep me up. To a point where you just don't want to engage with oh, it at all. Yeah, because I, I don't enjoy it. I mean I don't go on fairground rides either. <laughs> you know, for for people a lot of people that's kind of really exhilarating and cathartic and they enjoy, enjoy the adrenaline rush. Whereas I'm like, why did I just get on this? Can it be over now? Um I don't feel yeah, I don't feel anything but genuinely scared and want it to be over. So um I think even when I watched that Doctor Who episode, Blink is it? Oh the, yes the statues, I genuinely um turned it off. Mm. <laughs> or went out of the room and came back or something like that when I thought it might have got to a less creepy bit. But one person I think does creepy really well is Roald Dahl in um, his that's short a, stories. That's a good shout, that's a great well. shout. Like the landlady was one of my favourite short stories to teach with um, you know, younger younger students at school. He's got a yeah, great sense of macabre and definitely. I uh, was listening to a podcast the other day and they briefly mentioned Roald Dahl in there and I again feel like I need to verify this. Um, but they talked about how he was a he was a spy, and he's basically. You're just saying this because you're watching the Americans and you think everyone is a spy now. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> is a spy now. Um, no, uh, he. They, it was on uh, one of the stuff you should know podcasts. Well, I guess he was fluent in Norwegian, and like Norway was in with the Germans at some point, wasn't it? So that's very possible. Yeah, but he's basically, they, they were describing his job, his spy job was basically to go and sleep with people, okay. which from the Americans <laughs> seems to be about 80% of all spies' jobs. Um, 
But yeah, I, I need to find out more about so this. So nothing to do with being bilingual. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Apparently just being a terrific lover or something. Well done. Um, yeah. He also, he also wrote um, some of the James Bond scripts oh, as really? well. So I think he wrote The Spy Who Loved Me. <laughs> Even, but I, I could be making it up that it's that one. I find um, psychological <laughs> horror much more difficult to read than... Than supernatural things. Misery. Like a, a good example would be, I've read The Mist, by, which is a, a long a novella by Stephen King, um, about a mist that descends upon a town with lots of awful, horrible, disgusting creatures from another world that emerge from this mist and are just bloodthirsty and start killing everyone. Mm. And the action of the st- of the novella <laughs> is set in a supermarket. So our our group of people of at the time the mist has descended found themselves in a, they're in a supermarket lock the doors and the action takes place there and they and that's it's good like it's it's, it's very engaging it's horrifying but comparing that to a good example to compare it to be misery also by also by stephen king we should point out that you pretty much have a whole stephen king shelf don't you i do <laughs> i do i do like him a lot but misery i could barely read like it was oh, i've seen the film horrifying. that is yeah dreadful even though it's not supernatural it's just hor- it's much more horrifying to me i i almost couldn't couldn't continue with it, it to a point where like it's quite upsetting to read in a way that just the mist is not like, yeah the mist is much more fun just uh, monsters killing people it's like the shining which i guess is a little bit of the mangling of both isn't it it's psychological and the, um you know, something supernatural maybe if it but that's something that that's a film that i could definitely watch again with someone else yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't be able to watch it on my own i think the birds is um the only okay. alfred hitchcock sort of major film that i've not seen and that's because i'm a little bit scared of watching <laughs> it as well i know i have a copy of it so. i could not watch funny games i don't know i wasn't feeling very well to be fair when we put it on so i wasn't at my best but about 20 minutes in it's it's just it's just a psychological torture i think that's what it is it's psychological torture I just find unbearable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole film is that, and I just thought, I can't watch this. I think with Misery and with Funny Games, one of the linking things there that sort of makes them both so upsetting is that you get this feeling that at some at some point you get to this point where you think this character isn't going to get out of this. Yeah, there's power, there's power. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that sense of hopelessness as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I find it much easier to read stories. I quite enjoy reading stories about monsters and, and you know mist type things but yeah the psychological side of it I find much harder to cope with generally mm. um, yeah I remember watching uh, reading turn, The Turn of the Screw and things like that you know really old horror stories and finding well ghost story I guess and finding that completely um, it just didn't have any effect on me I, I don't know if that was because you know, all the sentences were about 20 words long <laughs> and trying to get to, yeah. trying to actually I'm get to what's happening James. there. Yeah, I found, I found it quite, um, things like that quite dull. But there are some Dickensian um, things that I do find really effective for their creepiness as well. Um, the Signalman's another short story, uh, well, a proper ghost story that I think's, yeah, really effective. Um, albeit again very wordy yeah one that i'd recommend is the dumas club which is uh by i'm gonna mangle the name but it's arturo perez revert who's a spanish writer maybe um it's really great and it's about a collector of old books old ancient books Uh, it was made into a film by director by roman polanski uh starring johnny depp 
called The Ninth Gate, which is a terrible film. I remember that being reviewed and... It's yeah. well, it's really <laughs> bad. The book is great. The book is so much fun. It rattles along. It's so... It's just really, really engaging. It's much better than the film is. Uh, and that's got this kind of supernatural creepy. There's, there's uh, certainly supernatural elements to what's going on in it. And that, that's really, really exciting and really fun. I, I enjoy that sort of thing. Yeah. I just remembered the most terrifying book that I have ever read, The Vanishing. Oh my gosh, The Vanishing, yeah. <laughs> Which is... Which you read every year. Yeah, well, yeah, I try, I try and read it as much... Yeah, I, I can't really get... I've never ever got tired of it. So, go on briefly, but what's The Vanishing? This, yeah, this is surprising to me, given what you've said about yeah. how terrified you of things, and yet you read something that terrifies you annually. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's about um, this young couple... Um, who are um, who are going on a holiday to France from Holland? They're a young Dutch couple. It's a Dutch book, which makes sense. Um, on the way, they stop at a gas station, and while they're there, um, uh, Saskia, the, um, the 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 woman, goes in to get some drinks from the gas station and never comes back out and her boyfriend whose name i'm really banking on at the moment spends the entire night at this gas station trying to find her and nothing she never appears again um nothing nothing is ever known what what happens to her he gets on with his life gets a new girlfriend but still in the back of his mind he's always thinking what happened to saskia and then one day this man turns up who says i know what happened to her and then gives him a choice you can come with me and I will tell you what happened to her but you have to do whatever I say or you or if you don't then I will go and you'll never know and I'll leave it there (laughs) it does sound intriguing it is good it's 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 more like a novella it's short isn't it it's not more than 150 pages The Vanishing it's really good alright I think we'll end it there I've been going for a while now so uh, thanks once again for listening Uh, please uh, in the description you'll be able to find links to Twitter and Facebook and things like that um, thanks to Jess, thank you to Gemma uh, that was The Loney by Andrew Michael Hurley 2015 book um, published by John Murray there you go